together from across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. Welcome to Resist Bot Live. Hey, y'all. It's Sunday, March 27th. I'm your moderator, Melanie Dion, and this is Resist Bot Live. Welcome. We're here every Sunday, usually live at 1 p.m., but this week we're doing something a little bit different. It's the last uh, Sunday of Women's History Month, or as I call it for myself, Black History Month, the sequel. And so we're all taking just a little break, not only to give ourselves a breather, but also reflect on some of the phenomenal guests and topics that we've had in the past. I am, um, you can find us, like I said, here every Sunday at 1 p.m., but also you can catch the replay of of us on our podcast wherever you find your favorite podcast every Monday. So we hope to join, hope that you join us then and use the hashtag LiveBotters to join the conversation. I'm here because ResistBot, like any movement that takes itself seriously, knows that if you want traction, you need women and films powering your movement, using their voices, uplifting other communities and themselves. People who think like Audre Lorde, who said, when I dare to be powerful, to use my strength in the service of my vision, then it becomes less and less important whether I am afraid. This isn't just for the women in films that we like. There's a representative, for example, in Colorado who has been one of her party's most effective megaphones when it comes down to spreading their message. Most often I get her stuff from people who don't like her or support her, but she really inspires everyone to dunk dunk on her in the quote tweets. That means her message spreads way beyond her base. So that feature, that bug is sounding a whole lot more like a feature. But of course, ResistBot has its own people who, uh, and our feature (laughs) is to uplift marginalized communities. And that has been it from the inception. Every week, of course, you see me, you see Athena Foulet, Susan Stutz, Christine Liu, and we have Angel Barrera, who keeps us looking good, who makes sure that when I make mistakes, she edits them out. So Angel is really one of the backbones that you don't see who keep Resist Spot Live moving. But then there are people before we got here, people like Donna, Elena, Lisa, Naomi, Jen, Carrie, all people who without them, we probably would not be here. In addition to those folks, we have had some of the most well-versed, prolific minds when it comes to the issues that impact us. Not always the issues that get the attention, but the issues that need attention. One of those issues is how in, what it's like to be indigenous in America today. And we were joined by Jake Spotted Wolf. And when they were here, they explained the harsh realities in our ninth episode, uh, in our episode entitled Indigeneity in America. So let's run that back and remember what Jake taught, told us about the indigenous, 
indigenous experience here? I don't know what the so-called American perception is of the life of the native. Um, I'm guessing from what I've observed in social media and from comments of people, uh, mostly white people, that we are grandly standing and having our dances and sitting in sweats all the time. So the populace needs to know for almost 150 years, it was illegal for us to practice our cultures and traditions. You could not be quote unquote Indian. You could not be Native American. Um, And if you were, you were like sent to prison. So um, when you're tied, when you're cut off from everything you've known, uh, when United States States government has systematically removed your food sources. They ran the Buffalo uh, completely out of, um, I mean, they, they brought people out and uh, posted rewards for people to kill Buffalo because they knew that was a food source. Um, They knew that we, we subsisted on crops and they would systematically go and destroy those cop, those crops in the residential school scenario. It looks like uh, kidnapping children, literally kidnapping children at force from chiefs and taking them hundreds of miles away to boarding schools so that um, the chiefs would start to calm down, you know, and uh, fall in line. Because if they had their children, then they have control over the tribe. And by taking your food, by taking your cultures and, you know, putting you in a residential school, cutting your hair, telling you uh, if you speak your language, you're going to be beaten. You're going to be beaten anyway at a residential school. You're going to be malnourished. You're going to, um, in that starvation, you're going to also be forced to do a lot of labor. Um, uh, you're not going to be paid for that forced labor. You are, I mean, these are places where they found babies hidden in the walls when they would go to tear down these institutions. So bodies aren't sent home. Uh, We're not given a chance to grieve. We're not given um, the chance for closure. And I know that, you know, it's a little tangential to bring residential schools into the loss of culture, the loss of language, but it all ties into what a reservation life looks like right now. And a reservation life looks like uh, sovereignty laws that prohibit the the growth of commerce and economy in the same way that it's allowed off of the reservation. So it could take up to five years for something to be built on a reservation because of laws, you know, sovereignty laws, where out in the world, it's a year, right, for permits to go up and for um, uh, build, buildings to be erected, um, and then that commerce to continue to grow the economy. Um, we're also talking about these reservations for the most part are very remote. You know, the United States government knew what it was doing by moving people to lands where nothing grew, uh, very desolate lands where the weather is hitting the hardest and cutting these people off from major urban centers so that you can't get access to the, the elements you would in any other region. So what it looks like on a reservation is me with my nieces at a an ice cream shop sitting across from a nine-year-old who very, very blankly is telling you that she remembers when her auntie beat her baby and threw her in a dumpster because she thought that she was a demon because her auntie was on meth. And this is coming from a nine-year-old kid, nine years old, 
the level of devastation and dysfunction and harm on reservations is unlike anything I've experienced in other communities that I've existed in. And I've, I've existed in a rough, rough place in my childhood. And to hear a nine-year-old just, you know, kind of nonchalantly tell you that story and then just recover it by like talking to her, her friends, my nieces after that and say like, what are you guys going to do after school tomorrow? That, that changes your reality and your perception of this is what's going on in reservations. The amount of unnecessary and early, early death um, on reservations. If people were to really, really kind of investigate that infant mortality, um, our life expectancy rate is 55, highest suicide rate amongst teens. Um, you would see a trend that there's not only no thriving on reservations, there's nothing but death. And all of the systems that have been put in place have accommodated that genocide. So as much as the United States government could not kill us off with smallpox blankets, by destroying our food sources, by stealing our children, by sterilizing our women in the 60s, by stealing our children in the foster care system and removing them from Native families and putting them into white families, they are still actively perpetuating genocide in this country uh, by letting Natives exist in the conditions that they do on these reservations. And if you were to talk to, you know, the Diné in what is so-called Navajo Nation and how their COVID rates spiked during the pandemic because they had no access to clean water because of resource extraction and because the government did not come in and clean up the explosions that happened after those uranium mines leaked into their water table and how they had to travel an hour to get clean water to come back and you know sanitize their homes then you understand the starkness of what's happening on reservations across the country and if it were just the Dana nation it would be one thing but that's those are conditions across turtle island we need those voices. We need voices like Jake's. And we also need voices like our, uh, the next guest that I'm about to, to recall. Our first episode this year, actually, we were joined by activist and co-conductor of Harriet's Wildest Dreams, Mimi Taylor, who talked about the treatment disparity as a protester for Black lives, as opposed to the treatment of insurrectionists on January 6th by law enforcement. Let's take a listen to what Nini uh, had to say about that. I kind of realized that hate is more contagious right now than COVID. And Black Lives Matter um, DC, like you just said, it was more so about George Floyd. And um, so um, Black Lives Matter Plaza was created during the murders of um, Black people in the United States. And so because of Black Lives Matter Plaza, it was like right on the, outs the, the side where President Trump resided. And so um, people had started just building a memorial. We started building a memorial fence while Trump was there. Um, just, you know, going back, you know, teaching people to be hateful and bringing back the supremacy of white people and saying that America is great. Make America great again. America was never great. And so reality is that Black Lives Matter Black Lives Matter, I apologize, y'all, that's my ring. <laughs> Black Lives Matter um, 
the movement really was not involved with what was going on, but because we had a memorial up there um, on Black Lives Matter Plaza and right at, right there at the fence, um, we had started getting attacked, not just by um, the police, but by white supremacists because they did not like that we was uplifting Black people. And so with that being said, that started when the white supremacists start coming, trying to support Trump, they automatically start attacking Black people and our allies and Tifa. Um, and they just didn't like the fact that we were still holding space for Black people in D.C. as they as they spurred our hate. And so from there, we were dealing with voter registry, voter voter um, voter oppression, and we were dealing with the hate the hate of Black people and how Black people was rising up and taking positions in where we belong here in America. Not just Black people, but brown people too. And, and thank you so much. One of the things um, that it's I, I I just cannot reiterate enough is that a lot of these groups were buddying up with the police during these during these um, during these your protests. So when we talk about what happened, the lead ups in November and December. It's disingenuous to say that no one had any idea because you're one of the people who made sure what was what was coming was known. And, and that is true, um, because um, we truly wanted Trump out of um, the White House because of what we experienced during the summer and how he had, you know, the police and, and Secret Service beat us on Black Lives Matter Plaza. We were intentional on getting black people out to vote, um, vote them out. And so we rode around on a truck just making sure that black people come out and vote um, because we don't feel like um, no president would save us. But it's a tool that we can use to um, help us try to get to where we need to go when it comes to our true total liberation. And so with that being said, um, on November the 14th, we knew that white supremacists and, and the Proud Boys were coming to D.C. So we wanted to come and protect the wall, which was the memorial fence. And so um, Black Lives Matter D.C., which I was a part of and a direct action coordinator at that time, um, and other organizations uh, shut down D.C., Live, Live, Go, Go. We built, um, we start, we got together as a coalition to go to Black Lives Matter Plaza to have a safe space and keep Black Lives Matter Plaza safe as possible during that time. And so they came to 14th and they like start tearing down our memorial and attacking us and DC police just allowed them free will to do what they wanted to do. They So we knew they were coming back December the 12th to try to like stop the vote. And at that time, instead of like counter protesting against them, we made, we actually, made a Black Joy party and said, hey, you all, look, they were really bad on November the 14th. So this time, let's just all come to the plaza and celebrate and just be in a place where we can celebrate us and not be out there fighting against Nazis and white supremacists and Proud Boys because the police didn't keep us safe on November the 14th. I actually have cases that I had to um, help Black people get free from that the police arrested Black people when white supremacists attacked them. So on December the 12th, we tried to be in our own space again and hold space on Black Lives Matter Plaza. And once again, the Proud Boys came, ran rapid, burnt down church signs, burnt down things at Black Lives Matter Plaza, attacked homeless people. They like attacked 
attacked us and attacked anybody who they thought was Antifa or against the government, which they felt was America and Trump's and against Trump. And they had free will to do that. And DC or the government didn't do anything about it. And so leading up to January the 6th, we had infiltrators in their groups because we have allies. And we saw they were coming back very, very strong with weapons, saying they bring in weapons and they're going to overturn the vote. And that, and because what we experienced November the 14th and December the 12th, we were very concerned to the point where I told black people and brown people to stay home because I knew that we would get attacked, arrested, or killed. And it went on deaf ears and the government and FBI knew about it. But because how I feel, cops in the Klan go hand in hand and they're ran by white supremacists, they didn't really take the threat serious. And so um, January the 6th, they was actually escorted to the Capitol before everything broke out. They started right there at Freedom Plaza. So they saw they were violent at Freedom Plaza and went to the Capitol. They didn't like just say, hey, we're going to the Capitol. They had a rally first. We also had friend of the show, Deborah Cleaver, join us that week. Um, and prior to that, she joined us another week. She joined us, she joined us in November when we were talking about the topic that brings us all to the yard, voting. Deborah does not believe in apathy. Let's hear her thoughts on what the actual issue with American voters are. Sure, but first I'm going to push back a little bit because um, one of the things that guides us at Vote America is that we reject outright the idea that people are apathetic and instead say that they are suppressed and that this narrative of people being apathetic is actually a conservative talking point that we are accidentally echoing because it's become the dominant talking point that like voters are apathetic, apathetic, apathetic. They're actually not apathetic. They are overwhelmed by voter suppression um, because no one is apathetic about their future or their family or their lives. And so we started, um, and I should also very brief background. I have been working at the intersection of technology and democracy since 2004. So about 17 years now. Um, and I just keep starting new organizations. And the one you didn't mention is the one that I'm best known for, which is vote.org. Like I vote started vote.org. So like people, people know my work if they don't know me, but starting in 2006, I would say to myself, if we reject the idea that people are apathetic and lean into the idea that they are actively just like overwhelmed and suppressed, what are we going to do to change that? So our, our theory of change is that if, if you make voting more accessible, people will vote like in greater numbers and more consistently. And if I can name one group in America that knows we are right, it's the RNC and the GOP. They absolutely know if voting becomes more accessible, more people vote. So what they do is they've been executing on this very smart 30 year strategic plan to make it exceptionally difficult to vote. And they're great at it. They're great, you know, Professor brought it up, like they roll back the Voting Rights Act. Um, they attack the Help America Vote Act. Sometimes they just outright ignore the laws. Like Alabama just did not get around to like following um, the Motor Voter Act of 1993 until 2016. Just didn't get around until the DOJ got involved. But at Vote America, we are focused right now on one 
very specific thing, which is getting souls to the polls, like anything we can do to help people cast ballots. So we have our website where you can find just oodles of information, which gets overwhelming. So then we built this entire tool set to help guide you through like the, you know, 50 different processes for registering to vote, for getting an absentee ballot, for checking uh, your voter registration. And then we do a ton of proactive outreach to what is called uh, low and mid propensity voters. Those are people who have been modeled to be less likely to vote. So partisan groups ignore them entirely. And that is our bread and butter. We're like, who are the people in America who will vote if you just give them a little bit of assistance don't ignore them entirely. Um, and so we do a lot of proactive outreach. And I should also say the, the one thing I'm really known for, you know those text messages you get? I largely, <laughs> largely my fault. In 2016, I was like, what if we buy cell phone numbers of people who are unregistered to vote and we just text them directly and say, hey, it's time for you to register to vote. And we had tremendous success with this. And in 2016, I predicted it would be the dominant tactic by 2020. And I will never be as right as I was in that well, I mean, second pitch. Women, as I said before, are essential in every movement. And that, again, does not always mean it's movements that I agree with. And nothing but the, puts that on display like the volume of cis women who have added their voices to anti-trans rhetoric. Let's hear what our guest, DeAndre Alon, had to say about the realities of being a trans woman in Dallas, Texas. Well, definitely for me, I feel like the sports thing is mainly just an attack mostly on um, young teenage trans femme um, folks in the sense of like, there's this running thing where they just feel like a lot of people are who were assigned male at birth are just wanting to transition into being a woman so they can excel at sports better. Because I guess, you know, competing against males wasn't good. So they're going to try to just go the easy route and like try to beat out women and stuff. But um, I feel like a lot of that is mainly from rhetoric we see from like shows and stuff. Like I know South Park. They, they touched on that and they were like, really, they just went completely over the top. And then um, I just feel like for the most part, it's kind of like this thing where it's like, oh, you're not even really basing it off the person. It's just the part they have. So it's like they don't want someone, I guess, with one part running around with all these other little girls kicking a ball and like throwing stuff, even though the sport at all has nothing to do with that. And then if that, if that trans person happens to excel, then it's like, you got all these mad parents, just like back in the day when a parent would be mad that like a black child was, or, 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 or a non-white child was like exceeding in sports over the, you know, the mm -hmm. white child. And so it's it's really just the same thing, I feel. Learn to be really, really resilient and really mindful of who I put myself around, you know? Because yeah. you tell somebody that here, it's kind of like a 50-50 of like, oh, you might have a new best friend or, you know, this person might try to like, get everyone to like, try to low-key burn you at the stake or something. So I live where a lot of murders for Black trans women um, happen in Dallas, especially. So it's the most dangerous 
place in the country for Black trans women especially, but um, trans women as a whole because um, non-Black trans women still get murdered here. In terms like there's been a lot of um, non-Black trans women here who have been murdered like either within Dallas or out of state. I mean, well, out of the city. So just like within the state, there was just some um, Latinx trans woman in Lubbock um, who was a drag performer and entertainer, I think, and she was killed by someone up there and they found her body somewhere up there. So, and that was like not too long ago, a few weeks ago. And, um, but yeah, I'm saying like Dallas especially is like the number one dangerous place in the country. The most murders in the recent years have happened here. So, um, and then I was just like saying like after that it's like Houston and number three is like New Orleans and I believe number four is Atlanta. I, mm -hmm. I think number five would probably be Miami. So, you know. Another one of our our uh, repeat guests and faves is, is talking about something else that we don't always, a, a lot of our topics tend to have uh, support that can be partisan, but not everything is. Defunding the police and prison abolition, one of those things. So we had Rhea Thompson Washington join us to talk exactly about what society without extensive policing looks like and, and take on that wildly unpopular topic. So let's uh, hear what Rhea had to say. Um, so, yeah, so that's exactly it. Recognizing the history of policing, recognizing that policing started out as a means of maintaining property and that property bodies. And it, that's the, the statistics that you were talking about are, you know, those are microcosms of what is happening all over the country that it doesn't matter how little the number of black people are in the area. Um, they're always gonna be over police. They're always gonna be arrested more. They're always gonna have more interactions. And for that reason, um, that's why we have to start thinking about what does it look like? Now, what does it look like? It looks like, again, the 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 amount of money that we spend on policing um and the word defund i think is so charged um that what if we don't talk about like defunding the police what if we just talk about funding other things right like instead of defunding the police what if we funded mental health because in the in the in new orleans east um what you're talking about is i heard a food desert I heard a lack of resources for healthcare. And that means that people are going to have more wants and needs than other places that have more resources in their community. It just, that's just how it works. And so that means that um, when people need healthcare, they're gonna go to the emergency room instead of like maybe an urgent care or another hospital or a doctor's office because they don't have those resources. Um, and so we start thinking about, well, what do we want to do? Like, what do we want to offer um, to their communities? Like, do we need police officers in schools? Is that, and in, in like K through 12 education, is that helping protect the students in any way? Um, what if instead of like police officers, we had more resources being put to, you know, education programs, after school care, food, just like basic food and income for 
um, the families to be able to live. Like there's this idea of a universal basic income that, you know, municipalities could, you know, offer to residents and pay residents to help out with resources. And I and I think the studies have shown um, in places, for example, in the Twin Cities of St. Paul and uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul has um, a, um, you know, your universal basic income. They have more resources. They have um, more access to to programming for um, folks who need it. And in Minneapolis, um, they don't, right? And so they have more money that goes to their police um, department, um, which recently just underwent, you know, the, the, the community was voting about whether to defund um, the police department or um, divest resources from the police department to a public safety department. A public safety department could um, be whatever we want it to be. It could be a place where there is mediation. It could be a place where people go to solve um, disputes using, you know, restorative justice or transformative justice or alternative alternative dispute resolution. Um, it could be a place where instead of, you know, we go to find out ways to be harmful to people or accuse people who we think have wronged us, but like go to find median median ground and like understand like, okay, and like, why did you do this thing? Maybe it wasn't meant to hurt me um, intentionally. Maybe you didn't have resources. Maybe you didn't have food. Maybe you needed to sell, you know, whatever, so that you can try to take care of your family. All of the things that keep us at odds with each other and figuring out why that is happening. I think that that is what we can do um, to do that. It's, it's, it's caring about your, your neighbors. It's about, you know, if you live in an, an apartment community and you know that, you know, there is someone who might be experiencing, you know, harm, um, you know, intimate partner violence, it's asking if you can, you know, help that person, asking if there's anything that you can do, not just pretending that it doesn't happen or turning a blind eye. It's actually putting yourself in the way of harm, which may seem scary, but at some point, if we all take the step to stand up for someone else, eventually, like, we're going to be, everybody will be standing up for each other, right? Like, if we continue to think about and plot out like what do I want to, what do I want I don't want to live in a world with police so what does that mean that I need to be safe um and how does that happen one of our most often quoted guests I do it Susan does it we've all probably done it at some point is Melissa Thompson uh we talked about how teleworking can play a role in demolishing disabled poverty I could not in a million years summarize anything better than Valissa could. So let's hear in her own words in the clip what she had to say about teleworking and how that can be life-changing for some disabled people. For me, my whole career as a social worker and an activist has been online. Um, one of the great things that teleworking has allowed is just this freedom. I'm a wheelchair user, and in traditional social work roles, that may mean that I you know, need to go out in the community. And as many people know, that not a lot of homes are wheelchair accessible. So that means there are barriers in me trying to retain work in my own profession. So working for myself, creating a space virtually eliminated this very big barrier. I've met so disabled social workers like myself who also are wheelchair users, 
those who may have disabilities that prevent them from driving or it may not be safe to drive. All these obstacles that, you know, industries like social work, you know, and other industries where you need a car to get there, where you need a license to be considered, where even if you may need to be able to lift a certain weight on the job, whether you may be lifting something or not, these are all barriers to us being employed and being seen as viable candidates. So being online, working virtually, whether for myself or when I was working for other organizations, really opened the door to what kind of work I can receive. When I started working, I was on social security and I rolled off because I knew that was the best opportunity for me. So in being able to work virtually, I was able to meet this personal goal. And for many disabled people, whether they're still on SSI or SSDI or any other government assistance, working from home is so much better for them. They don't have to worry about transportation options. They don't have to worry about you know, going into a brick and mortar every day and maybe being low on energy or having to flare up with their chronic illness, having to figure out how do I make my doctor's appointments and show up for work every day. There are so many barriers that are eliminated when we have options and appointments. And during this time, Mel, we've seen that a lot of opportunities that were denied to disabled people simply because we needed teleworking accommodations can be done virtually. And that it has left a bitter taste in many of our mouths who have been denied not just employment opportunities, but also school opportunities as well, because we needed them to be virtual and people were not hip to the fact that it can be done. It can be done effectively. Our productivity is not hindered because we are at home versus being in the office. And that for many of us not being micromanaged creates a more safer environment, particularly if you are a marginalized disabled person like myself being of color, if you're queer, if you're a woman or femme, you know, other identities to where, you know, microaggressions and macroaggressions can really impede your quality of life and your work. Telework can really help to eliminate or reduce many of those uh, obstacles and transgressions that impact our life, not just what we can do professionally, but also personally. We've had some absolutely amazing guests, but we have those guests because of open letters. We would not be anywhere without the open letters that each of you send in. Nobody knows that better than our next guest. Um, This would be the first time. Everything else has been sort of a, a replay, but this is the first time we're talking to one of the people who make ResistBot as a tool functional and amazing. And that's uh, ResistBot super user, Jessica Craven. If you have a topic, Jessica is on it. And we spoke to, I, sp- I spoke to her about what motivates her, how she uses ResistBot, and what letters she would like you to put, put your eyes on. So let's take a look at Jess. Hi, Jessica. Welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks so much, A, for being with us today, but B, for for your tireless work. I was kind of stumbling over finding a word to just describe how you make my job easy. (laughs) Because very regularly when, when I'm looking for a topic, when I'm looking for something, I can go to 
to your feed and I'll see something that's that's timely, that's well thought out, and that includes calls to action, not just shouting into the void, which I know, you know, it's something that sometimes we have to do, but calls to action are really what help resist bot move and, and keep it going and keep people coming back. Yeah. So I want to talk a bit about what got you here. <laughs> so first, do you want to talk a little about what you do and what your first petition, if you remember it, was? Oh, God. You know, that's a good question. I don't know that I do you remember my first petition, but I can tell you um, what brought me here. Oh, I got little. Um, yeah, and that was, that's a me thing. Oh, there worry. we go. <laughs> I like being little. Uh, anyway, so, well, I've been using ResistBot since about, you know, I mean, whenever you guys first started, which was mm -hmm. right maybe beginning of 2017. Does that mm -hmm. sound about right? Yeah. So I had started um, right after Trump was elected. I was not an activist at all before that. I was just interested in politics and, you know, but um, when Trump was elected, like so many people, I had the, you know, actually horror, horrified reaction and um, sort of what I tend to do when I go into uh, a freak out is try to figure out something to do. That's just sort of my nature. And so I ended up uh, creating a newsletter it started out as just an email that I sent out to a handful of family and friends with just a couple of things that I was hearing that we needed to do. Like, oh, we need to call, I guess we're supposed to call, uh, you know, our senators about Betsy DeVos and like tell them not to elect, Bet you know, not to confirm Betsy DeVos. And I would send out this email every day and uh, it became, it started to grow and grow and grow. And it turned into a newsletter called Chop Wood, Carry Water, which was just a, an old saying that I had learned from my dad, um, which is basically a, a, a way to get through difficult times. Uh, chop wood, carry water, just do the next thing in front of you to do simple actions. And so the newsletter became Chop Wood, Carry Water, which is still uh, coming out five days a week um, and has been ever since Trump was elected. But when when y'all came out with resist bot, um, I found it pretty early because I was finding I was just out looking for stuff all the time. And it was just this incredibly valuable tool for people who were afraid to write or call their representatives. Um, I'm a very kind of I talk a lot and I'm not I'm fairly extroverted. And what I found one of the big um, hindrances to people calling their representatives was just people who either had social anxiety or were phone shy or who were just not going to do it if they had to make the phone call. Some people would. And other people were like, I, I, I just won't do it. So ResistBot filled this incredible, uh, you know, need for a way to reach our representatives when we um, were not going to make the call. And the other thing, as I'm sure you will remember, in the beginning, when everybody was ringing phones off the hook, there would be days where no one could get through to their representatives. There was just busy signal, busy signal. I mean, it was kind of amazing in retrospect that that many people were calling all the time. Um, so I think ResistBot may have even come in specifically to address that issue uh, of just like no one could get through to their representatives. So um, I started using ResistBot then, and I ended up um, adding a section of my newsletter every single day uh, with a longer script so that people could call their representatives with a short script or a slightly longer script that they could send through ResistBot. And that has remained to this day. I still do the same thing. And yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. One of the reasons it became a necessity is they weren't answering the phones and they were unplugging the faxes. Mm -hmm. So we had someone going in to hand deliver letters. 
That's that's exactly. So you're exactly right. When you um, when we get to those issues, when you're motivated to send, when we think about letters that you're motivated to send, do you have something that's kind of on your speed dial? When you see it, as soon as you see it, you're motivated to to write this, not only write this open letter, but make sure that it's it's something that someone else can share. Is there something that that gets your attention faster than than other things? I mean, every day. But yeah, I I will. I pay a lot of attention to climate stuff, um, judicial nominations, and other nominations. Mm-hmm. Uh, ResistBot is so fantastic for budget things, things that are slightly more in the weeds. Um, not just like I want you to vote, you know, yes on HR three eight six one or whatever. Um, although I do those too, but. For example, we have right now, you know, we have obviously uh, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who is being confirmed in the Supreme Court. That's a really fast phone call. Like, obviously, I want you to confirm Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. But there's also other nomination processes happening at the same time, like right now for the Federal Reserve. And there's an amazing candidate named Lisa, Dr. Lisa Cook, whose confirmation has been delayed and delayed and delayed. And a lot of it, again, is racism, pure and simple. And also they just don't like her because she's, you know, believes in climate change and all kinds of other things. But an issue like that, that's flying a little bit more below the radar. um, People are slightly more inclined to glaze over when you start talking about the Fed. But it's really important for a million reasons, including like inflation, and it's our economy. And there's like systemic racism happening here, too. And so th- that's a great opportunity to write a slightly longer letter talking about all of those issues and then communicating to people why it's really important and getting them to send that letter. So sometimes if it's an area that requires a bit more explanation, ResistBot is amazing for that because they can read through the whole letter and understand, oh, this is why it's important for me to send this. Whereas if I just do one sentence in a call script, Call your senator and say, confirm, uh, you know, Lisa Cook. They're going to be like, well, I don't know who she is now. That doesn't sound that important. But the resist bot is able to give that extra information to both them and the lawmaker. And that's why I love it. But I will always watch for that thing that's flying a little below the radar. Um, and then save the calls for things that, like, we all know are important to call about. And and so it's a kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a mixed martial arts <laughs> thing. Absolutely. But- Absolutely. That's one of the things I do appreciate. And in, in, in terms of um, giving when we there's material that we're covering for the show, there are things, for example, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, that conversation is going to be everywhere and it is one that we're definitely going to have. But there are also other things that are affecting uh, people who aren't uh, necessarily in, in the spotlight, but that still need a great deal of attention, that still need, um, for example, our first show, Demolish Disabled Poverty, was a petition that got a tremendous amount of support, but we're still having the same conversations. You know, we're, we, we still have to have that conversation. We still haven't made headway on, on, uh, getting disabled people the same rights that that all of us are afforded. So it's something that even when it's not in the news, it's not one of the uh, the fashionable topics, they still need to be covered and we still need to be there. So I appreciate not only those uh, those larger ones, but 
going into the weeds because this isn't just about what makes the news. This is about the things that affect us. You know, the news focuses on a lot of, you know, the hill and we have to focus on the people. (laughs) So, And also in particularly budget questions like that, because those are, you know, our budget reflects our values. And right now our budget is like, let's pay for the military and everything else is kind of secondary. And it's, it's, uh, you know, so really, and lawmakers don't really expect to ever hear from us about that stuff. Mm -hmm. So when you send a letter saying, Hey, why did you just cut all this money from the budget for COVID funding or for IRS funding? You know, they, it may not make them do the right thing, but it at least lets them know that it's on people's radar, that, that we know what they're doing and we see what they're doing and we care. Um, and just one hopes if you create enough of a sound cloud around it at some point, they'll start you know, yeah. Yeah. I, I think there, there's been so much uh, made over Mitch McConnell saying that he is not going to vote to confirm Katanji Brown, Brown Jackson. Uh, and of course, Lindsey Graham's spectacle. They still represent you. And, you know, so, so even just as they said, you know, what they would not do, if you're still their constituent, you can still write a letter to them and let them and, and make your voice heard. I can't, I, I repeat over and over, these folks work for us. So it's, it's not shouting into the void, letting the person you elected or the person who represents you, because these men don't just represent the GOP. They represent everyone in, in, in their constituency. So make sure that they know what you think. Yeah. Well, and also uh, people always say, well, well, my representative is Ted Cruz. That's the one I hear the most. Ted Cruz seems to be the absolute low, the lowest bar of people just saying, like, why bother? Well, I guess for the simple reason that, yeah, he does work for you and your voice matters and what you think matters. And imagine how much worse he would be if no one ever let him know that he's he's doing the wrong thing. If he right. just felt like no one's paying any attention. I mean, he he could be worse than he is. I know it's hard to imagine, but... There's a new, there's a trap door in every bottom, as they say. So, you know, it's like we have to let them know we're paying attention. It's really important. Absolutely. And that goes um, into not only writing the open letters, but also us fostering this community where organizers and, and activists can interact beyond that. Because this is, I won't say that this is the easy part. I mean, there's so much that ResistBot has done to make it significantly easier. I mean, you pick up your phone, it's something we do all the time, but what happens beyond that and, and creating one of the things I appreciate about um, being able to, to follow people on, on resist spot is letting people know what things are on your mind. So I'm going to ask you for right now, outside of, I think what's on all of our minds, judge uh, Katanji Brown Jackson and her confirmation are there any petitions that you have right now that you would really like people to take a look at that you don't think perhaps are getting is getting enough uh, airtime or spotlight? Uh, I would say the Lisa Cook one is really important. Um, there is one about so in the budget that just passed, uh, the GOP uh, removed thirty million dollars in funding for the IRS so that they could pursue Russian oligarchs and uh, catch them and sort of seize assets. And the Russians pulled that funding, assumedly because they don't want the IRS coming after them. I guess they just don't want to fund the IRS. Um, That really bothers me. Uh, 
you know, all of the Fed uh, nominees, like it's really important. And, and you know, the GOP have already forced out one incredible nominee, uh, Sarah Bloom Raskin, who uh, they didn't like because she wanted to work on the relationship between our economy and climate. And they they were very, very threatened by that. So they forced her out. So those are all really important. Um, I mean, I, I could go on every single day. There's something in my newsletter that is I just desperately want people to pay more attention to than they are. But these Fed nominees right now, we are, you know, the, I don't need to tell anybody what the economy is doing right now and what is happening with inflation. And these are people who know they they, they come in with skills that are through the roof to handle this exact situation. And Republicans are just delay stalling their confirmation in every way they can. Um, and it's unconscionable considering the situation. So that, that is one. Um, and then in general, I also, uh, I continue to sort of work on child tax credits because when those expired, 4 million children fell back into poverty and I'm a mom. So the fact that like 4 million children more are going to bed hungry every night because not a single Republican would support even a standalone bill to fund that program again. That makes me insane. And that makes me, I feel like every American, I don't care if you are the furthest right MAGA in the country, how can you want 4 million children to go to bed hungry? How can anybody want that? So letters like that, I, uh, yes, I encourage, if I have done a resistance letter, it is an issue that is of paramount importance to all of us. Um, there is a, a bill uh, that just passed in the House I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's in my letters and it's about a, a, a bill to give the military funding to help veterans who suffered from um, illness from burn pits. You know, these burn pits they had in Iraq and Afghanistan and 137 Republicans in the House voted against it. Like so it squeaked through the House because we had all Democrats voted for it. And now it's going to go to the Senate. And once again, we have to beg Republicans to fund something that is so obvious like give these veterans the medical care they need right. and again it's going to be a slog so all of these you know i like when people follow me because i i just want to encourage them to like just send the letter like trust me this is vetted and i have really done the research on these letters and these items are important um so i mean obviously people should read the letter themselves and i always say if you want to tweak it just copy and paste it into your own resist bot and send it and make your changes but um I'm trying to make it as easy for people as possible. So, well, we appreciate it. I definitely appreciate it. You make it super easy for me. And I want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, before I let you go, can you let folks know the best place to find you? Let's hear from Resist Spot. Sure. Uh, well, I do have this daily actions newsletter called Chopwood Carry Water uh, Daily Actions at Substack. So you can just search Chopwood Carry Water Daily Actions at Substack. There it is. And I also spend a lot of time on TikTok. Um, so I'm Jess Craven 101 at TikTok, and I do a lot of uh, videos over there. And I use ResistBot in many, many of my videos. I'm trying to help teach sort of average Americans who maybe have never done it before to engage with their government, make phone calls, send ResistBots. And uh, I just did one yesterday about Lisa Cook, and I used a ResistBot for that. So um, I'm over there all the time. So come and find me any either of those places. And uh, I'm on Twitter too, but these are this is really where you'll find me the most. So that's it. Thank you so much, Jessica. Um, can't wait to have you back. And I hope that you will be joining us again soon. 
I would be happy to. And thank you so much uh, for, you know, everything, for having me and for doing such a great show and such a great service and such a great tool. The best. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, the petition that Jess wants us to, uh, would like us to all look at, that is, that can be found at, uh, the call sign is P as in Peter, Y, I as in ice cream, V as in victory, S as in Samson, T as in Thomas. If you text that to 50409, again, that is P, Y, I, V, S, T. Text that to 50409 to let your representative know that you want Lisa Cook confirmed. Um, And that is our show. I want to make sure that everyone takes a look at uh, Susan's blog post about the women that help resist spot run. And I want to thank all of you, uh, Susan, Christine, Athena, and Angel. Thank you so much every week for lending your voice to us, for lending your abilities to us, uh, especially for Angel, who makes sure that we look great every week. Um, You remind me of the Audre Lorde quote, when we speak, we are afraid our words will not be heard nor welcome. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak remembering we were never meant to survive. I want all of us to remember that when this work gets tiring, when you are exhausted from shouting, you can A, remember that you can aim your words directly. Those, your representatives are there to listen to you. And we're here to make sure that they hear you. So always, as always, text resist to 50409 if you would like to get your petition started and maybe be on the show. If you want to learn more, you can go to resist.bot. If you'd like to volunteer or donate, you can go to the same place, resist.bot. We make it very easy for you. And we have new donors this week. Um, We have Adrian from Rochester, New York. Equal rights and responsibilities for everyone under the law. Is there interest? Amy from El Reno, Oklahoma. Criminal justice reform. And Joy from Mount Pleasant, Wisconsin. Reproductive rights. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to look out for Susan's blog post. We, I hope everyone, including myself, is looking at this in our jammies. We're usually always live, so we'll get to kind of have our coffee in our in our in our house clothes and just enjoy our Sunday a little bit. The last Sunday in Women's History Month. Thank you. Not only thank you to the guests we had on the show today. Uh, thank you to guests like Bianca Mack um, and uh, and Lauren Rouse, Andrea Segovia, who uh, works with the Transgender Education Network of Texas, or TENT. Thank all of you for giving us your Sundays, for giving us your voice, for making sure that we're able to reach people, maybe the issues that aren't necessarily heard all the time, but we hear you. So thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next week. ResistBot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used ResistBot before, it's simple. iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. 
non-iPhone users. Open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. You can also direct message resist bot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more resources, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating robust public policy or voter turnout campaigns. And we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started. ResistBot is a non-profit social welfare organization built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. ResistBot Live is moderated by Melanie Dion. Our regular panel includes Athena Foulet, Christine Liu, Susan Stutz, and Dr. Joseph Kuhill. Thank you for listening.